Good morning. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor here. And we kind of skipped the announcement section at the beginning. So if you are new and you're looking for a home church, you'd like to get more connected, we would love to help you in that search. You can fill out the Connect card at the table on your way out today and put your email in there. And somebody on our team will send you an email this week and then help you get connected however you would desire. And we'll also point your attention to a class in December, uh, which just tells you who we are as a church family, uh, answers any questions you might have, and then helps you take some next steps as you would choose to do so. We're in a series today entitled Timeless, How the Eternal Church is Greater Than Shifting Culture. When truth is relative, culture will always shift, but we have something greater than a shifting culture. We have the eternal God who's created an eternal church that has an eternal mission to proclaim his eternal, unchanging gospel. A gospel of hope, a gospel of transformation, a gospel of healing, a gospel of life change. And so what we're doing in this series is we're studying the seven letters written to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It tells the, the, the story of the end of times. And at the beginning of the letter, there's seven, or at the book, there's seven letters. And these seven letters are addressed to seven churches. It's a literal number, seven letters, seven churches, but it's also a metaphorical or a representation of completion or perfection. These are Jesus's final instructions to his church. They're written in the midst of crazy times when truth was changing, when persecution was rising. And we're studying these words to see what would Jesus say to his church now? In the midst of shifting culture, what does Jesus want his church to know? And so in week one, if, the, if there was a question to sum it up, it would be this, do you love him? Not do you do good works, not do you like church attendance, do you love Jesus? Week two, we could sum it up with this question, are you willing to die for him? Week three, we could sum it up like this, are you willing to live for him? Because sometimes it's easier to die for him than it is to live for him. If we had a question for today, it would be this, to what level of authority and intimacy will you have with him? So what the letter does today is it introduces us to a tool that the serpent, the enemy, Satan, loves to use to both corrupt and destroy the church of Christ. And not just the church, but also individuals. It's a subtle tool, but it's a powerful tool. It's one that Satan has been using for all of time and I believe is unbelievably relevant to our modern culture in the modern church. It's a tool that is given one simple word in this text. Maybe you caught it as I was reading it. Tolerance. Tolerance. Tolerance has become a modern virtue, more important than uh, honesty or integrity. Do they have tolerance? It wouldn't be hard to imagine like a, a modern like kids program at the end of the school year where you pass out character traits that a kid would get the trait tolerance. There's an entire tolerance culture. And the lie that tolerance culture teaches is that the only path to love, the only way to show love is to tolerate all types of teaching. 
and that the worst, the worst types of people in the world are the intolerant, which is a funny mental exercise because to be the worst means you're intolerant of tolerance, which means the tolerant people are not tolerant of your intolerance, which means they're intolerant. So let's just cut a hole through the argument at the beginning. Jesus warns his church of this subtle or not so subtle tug of tolerance and the devastating effects that it can have. So Jesus, in this particular letter, he gives himself a name at the beginning of each of the letters. And this name is interesting. This is not cute shepherd Jesus in this letter. It says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the word of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is transformer Jesus. And he is ready to fight. He's ready to fight. And he's looking out at his church and not a stagnant church, not a stale church, not a dying church, but actually a church that is on the rise, a church that is experiencing growth, a church where there's energy and there's excitement and there's people getting healed. Look at this church. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first and to this church that is uh, loving and, and faithful and service-oriented and persevering, to this church, he writes a warning. The last line there, it says that their, their latter works exceed the first is a way of saying that it's growing and it's, and it's greatly increasing. And so to the church on the rise, Jesus says this, but I have this against you that you tolerate you tolerate. Jesus is warning to his church. Jesus is warning to his church that is headed in the right direction. And I hope we are as a church is watch out for this tactic. Tolerance. Watch out for it. Now this particular type of tolerance has a name. Jezebel. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Jesus is writing this letter, and he calls out this one specific person. That woman, she's horrible, Jezebel. There's debate on whether or not the woman's name was actually Jezebel, or if it's just a reference to the Old Testament character, Jezebel. Suffice it enough to say that if you are in the process, young hipster, of naming your child, don't name it Jezebel. It's right up there with Judas. Not a good Bible name. And so this woman, Jezebel, Jesus looks in and he's like, her teaching is corrupting the body, the church, and you are tolerating it. There's three different groups of people in this letter. There are the tolerators. There are the practicers and there are the resistors, the tolerators, the practicers, and the resistors. The tolerators are allowing the teaching to occur. The practicers are actually engaging in the teaching. 
And I don't know if this is a universal statement, but it seems like Jesus is saying they're almost a victim to the tolerance of the tolerators. Not to negate individual responsibility, but it's as if to say, Jesus is saying, and and you tolerators, you are allowing this to happen to these people in your church through your tolerance. And then there's the resistors. We'll get to them at the end. That's the group you want to be in, by the way. And so to these three groups, Jesus reminds them of, of how horrible Jezebel is being in her, in her teaching. But also, look and see this. I gave her time to repent. This woman has become infamous. And particularly in some Christian circles, people will be like, that girl has the spirit of Jezebel. Like, that's like the scarlet letter, okay? She's become infamous, this woman. But Jesus loved her. He gave her time to repent. Time to repent. Like, I think the insinuation there is, like, it was more than one. He gave her time to repent. See, Jesus' love is wrapped up in his allowance of repentance, not in his tolerance, See, the modern lie is that tolerance is love and that Jesus' love must be shown through tolerance. That's not where Jesus' love is shown or on great display. His uh, love is shown or on great display through his offering, continuous, ongoing offering of repentance to those who rebel. This, this, that is what the love of Christ is. He offers it. By the way, church, that means we must too. It means we must continue to offer the grace and the repentance of Christ. Even to those who we would look and say, oh, you're teaching that which is wrong or you're corrupting, you're polluting. What is our hope and prayer for each of those people that in love they would repent and return to Jesus? See, as I begin this discussion around tolerance, if you're um, receiving of it and then you're acting out the way that I'm going to instruct you results in you being a jerk and an enemy of anyone who doesn't think exactly the way you think, then you haven't properly received the message because Jesus, who is the great resistor, is also the friend of sinners. You'll hear this statement now, truth in love. I actually think it's kind of a dumb statement because truth is love. Truth is love. Love is truth. Because you will see here in this church in Revelation and on another example that I'll give you later, that on the other side, why? Why? Is Jesus so strongly speaking out against this type of tolerance? And let's, let's give it a label. It's tolerance of bad teaching. That's what's happening here. It's tolerance of bad teaching. And the reason that Jesus is being so adamant against the tolerance of bad teaching is because Jesus knows this, that what is tolerated will eventually gain influence And what gains influence will lead to immorality. And where that settles in, there will be a destruction of intimacy and authority. 
Let me just walk through the progression again. Tolerate the bad teaching. It gains influence or platform. It will produce immorality. And on the other side, destroy intimacy and authority. That's the progression. And so Jesus looks in and he goes, we can't tolerate. You can't tolerate this, church. Let me show you where to land. Destruction. Destruction of souls. Despair of humanity. I know some who are listening right now would would even already begin to suggest this this seems a little strong or it seems a little harsh. Uh, isn't Isn't there room for some type of tolerance? Tolerance never wants just a small space. Tolerance always wants to enter in and take over completely. It always progresses. And on the other side of it, are people broken by sin, ruined by an enemy who wants nothing but destruction for them. And what stands between ruined people, dead souls, is a church that resists the tug of toleration. Now, bad teaching is what is at the aim here. So let's take a step back and ask ourselves a question. Well, then what is bad teaching? Bad teaching is anything that changes Jesus. Bad teaching is anything that adds or subtracts from the gospel. Bad teaching is anything that produces or creates space for sin. These are the three types of bad teaching that we see all throughout the scripture uh, that uh, there are different warnings for throughout. The first one, and I I know I hit this last week, by the way, but some of you weren't there. Um, And and then also, um, I want to go in a little more depth here because it is important that if we're going to not tolerate bad teaching, that we can identify bad teaching. So bad teaching, number one, it changes Jesus. This one was um, evident right at the beginning, and the um, Apostle John or the Elder John, whoever you think wrote the letters of John, uh, that John took great offense at this right from the beginning and wrote most of his letters addressing the idea of people trying to change Jesus. So here's how we say it around here. We believe, this is taken from our statement of faith, we believe Jesus Christ is both God and man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He led a sinless life, took all our sins upon himself, died and rose again, and we are saved by his shed blood. Today, he is seated at the right hand of the Father as our high priest and mediator, and I'd add to the end of it, and maybe we need to in our official statement of faith, and he's coming back soon. This is what we believe about Jesus. And you can't tolerate anything that would begin to change Jesus. Can't give it influence. And it's the whole thing. Jesus Christ is both God and man. And so today, there's teaching out there that would say, well, yeah, we believe he was God, but he wasn't really man. That doesn't really make sense. Or Jesus was just a man, but he wasn't God. Nope. Can't tolerate it. 
He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And people say, I can't actually believe that. Well, if you're going to believe the rest of the book, that part's really not that hard. And it is important that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary because it plays into the fact that he could understand our humanity but also be sinless, that he could have the, uh, be the fulfillment of the, the fall of Adam and also be our salvation. He led a sinless life. This is also under attack today. He took all our sins upon himself. He died and he rose again. And we are saved by his shed blood. This kind of teaching became more common about 20 years ago where people would just begin to say things like, Jesus' death on the cross is just an example. It's not the actual payment for sin. Whatever attack it is on this, Jesus cannot be changed. Can't be tolerated. Number two, any addition or subtraction from the gospel Paul was the big defender of this. He wrote an entire letter on it in Galatians, and he started the letter by saying, hey, if anyone changes the gospel, just curse them. Don't let them change it. Why? Because Paul knew that if you change the gospel, then it loses its ability to change people. You change the gospel, and it can no longer change you. The gospel has to stay the gospel. We believe, this is from our statement of faith, we believe sin has separated us all from God and that we are reconciled only through Jesus Christ. There is no other path to salvation. We believe that salvation is the gift of God to man. The gift is affected by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and it produces works pleasing to God. Notice that the works come after the salvation because the most miserable people in the world are the ones who put the works before the salvation. The gospel cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The only hope that we have for any person, the only hope that we have for any redemption is through an unchanged gospel. Third type of bad teaching is any teaching that makes space for or allows for sin, which is what is clearly being pointed out here. He's saying, this is Jezebel, and she's teaching this. And because of that teaching, everyone's going, oh, now I can go do this. Paul addresses this in Romans when he brings up, uh, maybe you're uh, hearing all of this grace message, and you're hearing all this grace, and you think, well, now I can just go do whatever I want. And in summary, Paul responds with, then you weren't really listening to what I was saying. Any type of teaching that would make space for, for sin, for disobedience, is bad teaching. Why does bad teaching exist? Let me give some of the corporate reasons. Right, bad teaching, maybe from a, a church platform or a teacher or a speaker, right? Because if this teaches us one thing, it, it teaches us that everyone who claims to be pastor, preacher, prophet isn't. Everyone who claims that they have a message that should be heard doesn't, Right? Why does bad teaching exist? The scripture teaches us sometimes bad teaching exists because people are, are greedy and they just want to make money off of their teaching. Some bad teaching exists because people want to please man instead of God. Individually, why do we allow teaching to gain influence in our own lives? I think a lot of times for that, it actually starts at the bottom instead of the top. 
It, it, a lot of times we allow bad teaching to begin to infiltrate who we are because we want to make space for sin. And then in order to make space for that sin and still to justify our relationship, then we reverse, we change the gospel, and then we change Jesus to justify what we wanted to do at the bottom. The prosperity gospel is a great example. We want to use God as just a means or a mechanism for us to uh, have wealth beyond our wildest dreams. And so we want to make space for that in our lives. So then we change the gospel and then we change Jesus. And boom, we get what we want. To this type of teaching, we're instructed here, Jesus, do not tolerate. You tolerate that woman. Now, I believe that at the, at the heart, at the heart of this message, we have to be reminded and convinced of the disastrous effects of where tolerance leads. So let's go back to the beginning, back to the very beginning when tolerance first showed up. It didn't take long. In the garden, there's two characters, Adam and Eve. One of them is going to become the tolerator. The other is going to become the practicer. And into the garden, this perfect garden, they were like a church on the rise. Things were good. And they had all of the authority over the earth. And they had an unmatched intimacy with God in the garden. They had all authority and they had all intimacy. And then in sneaks a bad teacher. But here's the thing with bad teachers. They're often really good teachers. You following me? <laughs> bad teachers are often really good teachers. And the first bad teacher was a really good teacher. His name was not Jezebel. It was Serpent. And the serpent shows up. And what he does is he plants a lie into Eve's mind. And her husband, Adam, tolerates it. He allows the bad teaching to go unchecked, offers no correction or instruction or reminder of uh, the truth of what God had said. Instead, Adam tolerates the bad teaching. And the bad teaching, which is tolerated, then gains influence. It leads to immorality. And what does it do? It completely destroys Adam and Eve and all of humanity's authority and intimacy. And later, what does God do? He blames both the tolerator and the practicer. Let me make the connection. The only way, the only way that you and I can believe that, that, that tolerating the type of bad teaching that I have laid out or the examples of it is the loving thing to do is if you also believe that Adam and Eve were better off after eating the fruit. The only way you can think that any modern bad teaching is the loving way to embrace people is if you think that they're going to be better off after engaging in whatever sinful behavior it is. But the garden gives us such a clear, 
perfect picture of the damage of sin. Authority, gone. Intimacy, destroyed. It was tolerance that destroyed humanity in the garden. And tolerance like this can still destroy humanity today. So what do we do? Jesus says what he's going to do. He says, I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent, just a reminder of how loving he is. Behold, though now, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say unless they repent of their works. It says unless they repent of her works. It seems like they're, toler- they're repenting of what their toleration or their tolerance produced. And I will strike her children dead. That just means her spiritual offspring, just so you know. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. He's saying, I'm going to use this as an example to the other churches to let them know that I know what's going on. And then he writes these words. But to the rest of you who do not hold this teaching, to the rest of you who are the resistors, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. What are the deep things of Satan? The deep things of Satan are anything, teaching, idea that gets planted into the human heart, the human mind, or the human soul that leads to a rejection of the things of God. The deep things of Satan are are anything that begin to turn the heart to, to walk away instead of to walk towards To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have. What did they have? They had Jesus. They had the gospel. They had each other. And he's saying, what you have right now, hold fast to this. Or how we would say it in this series, don't shift. Don't shift. Don't shift with culture. Don't shift with the church. Don't let the church begin to shift. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what's on the other side of the shift. Death and destruction and despair. There are no answers over there. There is no hope over there. There is no healing over there. There is no salvation over there. Some of you, I can tell you, just run after whatever you think is better than Christ. And I will tell you where you will end up. Some year, some month, sometime down the future, empty. And I would warn you of that far before you head down the path. I would call you off of it if you've stepped on. Jesus fighting Transformer Jesus here, he is fired up And I think he's fired up in the same way that I, as a father, am fired up whenever I see my daughter step on the other side of the line of the sidewalk. I could 
I could fall into tears right now if I just think long enough about what happens if my three-year-old goes unchecked off of the sidewalk into the street. There is zero tolerance in my voice or in my mind or in my heart the moment she steps off of that sidewalk. And I don't care to a passerby how unloving it might sound. I will not, not for a second let her walk into that. And as a pastor, and as a church, we can't either with the same level of fervor. Oh, and I hope my daughter knows how much I love her. And I hope anyone else breaking through the metaphor would know how much we love them. So how do we do this, friends? How do we resist? We've been told what to do, hold fast. We know what it is. We know it's, it's, it's standing for this truth. It's holding on to these values. It's not tolerating bad teaching. We, we know that now. How do we do it? How do we hold fast? Well, first, we, we resist. We, we resist. OK, so resisting in this regard, some of you, you might need to delete some podcasts off of your phone because it's bad teaching, because you're tolerating something. And if you're not, if you're not careful, it's going to turn your heart. Not in, our, not in our libraries, not in our phones, not in our, on our live streams or on our TV. Should we tolerate bad teaching? We resist it. Number two, we ought to repent. Just give you a tip. Repentance is just always a good idea. We ought to repent if, if need be. Number three, Number three, we, we, we should seek proper knowledge. We should seek proper knowledge. We should seek, seek proper understanding. I don't know when this came about because I'm, I'm kind of young, but, it, but at some point in time, like the idea that I can both be fully in Christ and never read my Bible became a thing. And I don't know how. It's sad because the scripture uses this metaphor that as food is to the body, so is scripture to the soul. And some of you have been fasting for a really long time. And you need to break the fast. You need to eat. And you need to be filled with it. I'll give you a trick into reading your Bible more. I learned this one through experience. It's a good trick. Get onto your phone. Delete your Facebook app. Wherever it was at, put your Bible app. You will be reading your Bible more than you ever have in your life. You won't even realize it. You'll just go like this, like this, like this, like this, and it'll be like, Bible, 49 times a day. I'm joking, but I'm actually serious, which means I'm not joking. You know, you can delete your news app from your phone, too. That's a very liberating thing. Fill yourself with proper knowledge. Fourth, how do we resist? 
Holy Spirit power. We're going to need the Holy Spirit to do this. We're going to need the Holy Spirit to do this, right? Because as I mentioned earlier, the same one who was the chief resistor was also the friend of sinners. And so there was a right way and a wrong way to resist. And so we're going to need the Holy Spirit to show us how to do this. So we're going to have to ask him to help us. Fifth, how do we do this? Through the power of church community. Through the power of church community. Now we live, of course, in a world where church is everything from um, the mega church pastor that you watch online uh, that is, you know, 87 states away. There's not even 87 states, 27 states away. Or to, yeah, I, I watch these four or five churches every Sunday morning online. These are all, most of these things that I've mentioned are good things, but they do not replace the power of a church community that we all need and we're all designed and wired for. That I would encourage all watching online. Listen, if you live six states away, I love you and I'm glad you watch. But you need a local church. You need a local church. And so do all of us. And it is the power of that church community that can hold us together. What happens when we hold fast? What happens when we hold fast? The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. The first thing that happens when we do this, when we hold fast, is authority is restored. The authority that the church was supposed to have is restored. And it seems like the first thing that goes out the window when tolerance settles in is the authority of the church. And so when the church wonders, how come no one's getting saved? Because you're not preaching the gospel. How come there's no healing? How come there's no power? How come there's no whatever? Because authority went out the window when tolerance came in. And so the church can't be the church that Jesus came to plant, which is powerful, which is transformative, which brings light into darkness, if it is allowing darkness a place in the midst of it. What happens next? He says, I will give him the the." The resistor, I will give them the morning star. He's actually just making a reference to himself. The authority is reestablished, and then the intimacy begins again. Great intimacy with Christ. Now, what makes me confident? What makes me confident that we can hold fast? that you can hold fast, that we together as a body can hold fast. Because in the garden where there was the resist, or I'm sorry, where there was the, the tolerator and the practicer in the garden, where the bad teacher crept in, well, another character shows up later. Says it's the angel of the Lord. I've said this before. I'm pretty sure it was Jesus. Jesus shows up in the garden 
And he looks at the, the tolerator, and he looks at the practicer, and he makes a promise in that moment, a promise that he fully intended to keep, and a promise that he did keep, that he would destroy the negative effects of what had happened because of tolerance and practice. And so a few thousand years later, Jesus comes down to earth. Jesus, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who's both fully God and fully man so that he can both relate to our weaknesses, but also carry the divine nature of God so that it can fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham when he said, even if you fall short, I'll take the punishment. That Jesus is born and he lives a sinless life, perfect, so that he can go to the cross. But before he gets to the cross, Satan shows up to him in the desert and he plants bad teaching in his heart and Jesus resists it. And then when Jesus talks about planting his church, the church that's going to be the hope of the world, that's going to bring the message of the gospel to all people, one of his own disciples sneaks in some bad teaching and Jesus looks back at him and calls him Satan and he resists it. And then the night before his death, he goes to the garden and he's in the garden and in the midst of the garden there's like this this thing that pops up into Jesus that's like hey is there any other way and he resists giving into it and he goes to the cross resisting all temptation to change the gospel to change the plan and then he rises from the grave as both our salvation and the power to resist that's why I'm confident that we can resist that's why I'm confident you can resist. Not because you're special, not because you're great, but because he in us gives us that power. And because he gives us that power, we can resist. And when we do, and in our resisting, we preserve and hold on to the most beautiful thing, the gospel. So we can look at any person, as all of us have done, if we're in Christ. We can see the own depravity of our own heart and the beauty of a God who gave us time to repent. And you know the joy, the hope, and the peace of that repentance. A long time ago, for some of you, in a church far, far away, somebody refused to tolerate. And that's why you've received the gospel. May we now do the same for people around us and for generations to come so that they might know the goodness of Jesus that has changed each of us. Let's pray. Father, I can, in some very small ways, see a connection between our church and this church. Great things are happening, Lord. You've been so good to us. 
And it would not be hard to imagine that the tug of tolerance would want to creep in. Ah, but Father, give us the love that you have for people. A love that is so strong that it won't allow for a second anything to gain influence that won't actually set the people we love free. So for the sake of your name and for the sake of all those that you deeply love, help us to walk in resistance, but also help us not to just be on defense, but to go on offense with the authority and the intimacy that you've given us, proclaiming your gospel and seeing you change and transform people's lives. Father, help us to do this together as a church, as one. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.